So just as a conversation starter, if you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Some of you probably have something just right at the top of your head, and some of you might have to think a while, but we could all come up with a long list of things we would change. Taller, shorter, bigger, smaller, richer. I don't think any of us want to be poor. Uh, younger, maybe, more successful. Would, is there a, some skill? You wish you could do this. I wish I could sing. I wish I could speak a foreign language. I wish I could run real fast. You know, what, what would you add to your personality, your, your list of characteristics? Paul, in this passage, found the greatest advantage he ever had, aside from Jesus himself, was through something that none of us would choose willingly. So that's your introduction. We're in 2 Corinthians 12, and remember this is in the part of the letter where Paul is defending himself against the attacks of his enemies in and around the Corinthian church. And last time we saw him sarcastically boast. So he knows that his enemies are walking around talking about all their qualifications and look at, look at how successful I am, look how well I dress, Look at all these churches I've preached in and all these souls I've won and et cetera, et cetera. Paul tries to match their boasting by instead boasting about the things he's suffered, about those things he has, the price he has paid for doing the Lord's work. And he continues with that same vein in chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So I want you to notice, he, he continues to say, I don't like doing this boasting. In fact, it's pretty obvious based on the pronouns he uses as the story goes on, that he's talking about himself when he says, I know a man in Christ who went up to heaven 14 years ago. Um, so why doesn't he refer to himself in that way? Why doesn't he say, I went up to heaven? Well, I think that's part of his means of saying, I don't want to brag about this. So I'm just going to talk about myself like I'm just some random person. Paul is not ashamed of his qualifications. If he wanted, he could talk about how Christ himself chose him to be an apostle, but he doesn't. Instead, he says, 14 years ago, I was carried up to heaven. And what I find remarkable, and I never really thought about it until this time when I was studying this passage, Paul planted the church in Corinth. He knows these people. He spent time with them. And yet this seems to be the first time he's ever told them about his trip to heaven. Now, I think every one of us would say that's the first thing we would have said. When we were planning a church, when we were getting a bunch of Christians together, we would say, oh, by the way, I've been to heaven. Have you been to heaven? You need to listen to me. So this is just <laughs> sort of indirect proof that Paul is not in this for boasting or getting credit. Uh, but it, what he's trying to do is he wants to bring them inside his mind. He wants them to say, listen, you've heard what my enemies say about me. Let me tell you what it's really like to be me. Let me tell you what I go through. So you can judge for yourself. He said, and he calls it the third heaven. Have you ever wondered about that, why he calls it that? 
The Jews thought of heaven in terms of levels. Uh, they, the, the heavens included the sky, included whatever was beyond the sky. They didn't know about outer space, but they knew there was a place where the stars were. And then they assumed that someplace beyond that was where God dwelt. So that's what they called the third heaven. Paul is talking about going into the presence of God. And I want you to notice two things besides the fact that he calls it the third heaven, which, by the way, it's the only time in the Bible it's referred to that way. But he also calls it paradise. Somebody else called it that once, and that was Jesus in Luke 23 as he was dying. Today you will be with me in paradise, he said to the thief dying at his side. And remember, you've probably heard this before, either from me or somebody else, that word paradise is not even a Hebrew word. It's an it's a, it's a, um, Arabic word. And, and it refers to, or a Persian word, it refers to the private garden that a king or a wealthy man would, would have on his estate, where only he and his family could gather and relax. And so that's Jesus saying, and Paul here as well, saying that when we die and we're absent from the body, present with the Lord, we're in a place that's like a private garden. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, literally true that heaven is a garden, although that's fine with me if it is. But I think the point is, we're with our Father. We're with our Father, and we're shielded from everything that bothers us. We're, we're in a place with, with no pain and no sorrow. We're, with, we're in a place where there's no enemies. We're in a place where there's, I'm assuming, no mosquitoes or fire ants, right? I mean, we're in, we're in God's private garden with Him. We're in paradise. And notice He also says, I heard things that cannot be told, which a man may not utter. In other words, I love this, what Paul experienced was too good to be expressed in human words. And can you consider how eloquent Paul was, how good he was with words, how he would just go on and on and on about a subject and just pile on the descriptiveness, right? The things he says about Jesus, the things he says about grace. Paul was not, uh, not lacking in the ability to express himself, and yet what he had seen there was too good to be expressed. So, you know, I, I know I talk probably more about heaven than most preachers are used to, and I know some people probably think I, I think I know more than I do, and that may be true, but one of the things that I love about this is the Bible has enough information about heaven to make us excited, but there's enough left unsaid that we think, you know, it must be even better than I can imagine. So if I can go off on a tangent for just a moment, when people think about heaven, they always ask, well, will it have, will my pets be there? That's a common question. Will I be able to play golf there? Will I be able to go hunting there? Will I be able to eat beef? Yeah, that's, that's a question people ask. If there's no death in heaven, will we be able to eat meat or will we all, all be vegetarians? And all these kinds of questions. Those are not bad questions to ask, by the way. And I have my own opinions on every one of them. But when you look at the scriptures, what, what you need to remember is our wildest imaginations won't be able to match what God has planned for us. So what I always say to people when they ask, will there be, I always say, well, why not? Can you think of a reason scripturally why that can't be in heaven? And if not, then I think you're safe assuming it's going to be there. Because if you get there and it's not there, it's only because something even better is. You understand? It, it, we will not be disappointed. That is the guarantee I can make you. Because God is incapable of disappointing us. 
So when did this happen? When did Paul have this vision? We think this letter was written about the year 55 or 56. So since it was 14 years earlier, it would have been in 41 or 42. Now, people who studied Paul's life intently will tell you that was during his so-called silent years. Paul came to know Christ on the road to Damascus. He went away for a while, then he came back and preached in Damascus, and he was thrown out, right? They persecuted him. He went to Jerusalem, he met the disciples, and then for a while he just went back home to Tarsus. For years, he went back home to Tarsus, and we don't know what he did. We assume he studied the Word of God, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, worked through where the gospel is found in the Old Testament letters. We don't know. There's this gap of about eight or nine years where we don't know what Paul was doing. And that during that time is when he had this vision. And why? Why did God give it to him? We don't know, but I think we can assume it was because God knew he would need encouragement. Paul was had tasted a little bit of persecution. You know, the apostles didn't want to have anything to do with him. They tried to throw him out of Damascus. But the real hardship was coming. The real hardship wouldn't really start until Barnabas came and got him out of Tarsus and brought him to Antioch and they started doing ministry there and went on their missionary journeys. And so don't you know that it was helpful for Paul whenever he was arrested or whenever he had to go a night without food or whenever he was mocked or deceived or criticized or beaten to think, well, this isn't all there is. Something better is coming, and I've seen it with my own eyes. It's sort of like uh, when a woman is pregnant today, and she goes to the doctor, and he shows her that sonogram, right? That ultrasound. Sonogram, ultrasound, I don't know. Shows her the baby on a screen, right? Now, it's changed a little since my babies were being born. I looked on that screen, and I couldn't, it could have been an elephant on the screen. I don't, it didn't, it was just so grainy and But there, those images are sharp now. You can practically see a, a picture of that child. And what that does for that woman is it says, you know, what I'm going through right now is really inconvenient, but it's going to be worth it. And harder times are coming when the labor starts, but she's going to say, yes, but I've seen what's waiting for me and it's going to be worth it. And that's what God does for Paul here. Now, let me just say one more thing before we move on. I know I'm spending a lot of time here, but there are times in Scripture where God speaks through visions. There are three things we need to remember, though. Number one, that's not the way God always speaks, even in the Word of God. He speaks in a variety of ways in His Word. Uh, my, one of the books that's had a profound impact on me and how I learned to hear the voice of God is the book uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. Um, he says that these days, by his estimation, God tends to speak in four ways. Of course, God can do whatever he wants. You could go to bed tonight and have a dream, and it could be God speaking to you. But if you really want to hear the voice of God, Blackaby says, look at the Bible, look at prayer, look at the circumstances of your life, and look at his church. In other words, talk to the people of God and say, here's the decision I'm making. What Can you help me discern God's will? The Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church. In other words, don't wait for a vision to come before you act. Always do what you know God wants you to do and wait for him to speak in another way. The second thing I would say is, remember, a vision or a dream from God never contradicts Scripture. Nothing contradicts Scripture except the devil himself. So if you wake up tomorrow and you've had a, a dream that tells you, I need to do this, 
and you know that the Bible says that's a sin, then yet that dream wasn't from God. If you f slip into a trance and have a vision that says you should kill your next door neighbor or leave your spouse and marry somebody else, you know that's not a vision from God because it directly contradicts the word, right? So always judge all extra biblical revelation against the scriptures because God's not going to contradict himself. And then third, look very carefully on the supposed visions of others. There are people, and you've probably met them, and maybe you know some of them now, who will come to you and claim to have had a vision. Hey, I had a dream about you, and this is what it told me. Or, hey, God told me to tell you. And I'm not saying God can't speak that way, because sometimes he does. <coughs> but that's also an opportunity for you to be deceived. So pray for discernment. When someone says that to you, again, check it against the Word of God. Check it against uh, other Christian friends that you know. Hey, somebody just told me that God is telling them to tell me this. How does that sound to you? Wait, you know, lean on the wisdom and discernment of Christian friends. Pray for God to show you His will. Don't just believe it because someone says it. And I think y'all are all smart enough to know that, but I needed to say it. So let's go on with verse 5. On behalf of this man himself, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, if I wanted to match credits, if I wanted to match uh, skins on the wall against these people who are slandering me, I could do it. And you know that I could. And they know that I could but I'm not going to brag about that kind of stuff. I'll tell you about something that I, I get no credit from, like being carried away on a vision to God. Why? why? Why will he not play their game? He says, I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset that I, I'm constantly praying that God would put into me. This idea that I am not motivated by trying to impress people. That's, that's where I want to get to. I'm not there yet, but I'm better than I used to be. It's important for us as Christians, those of us who have that personality type, that people-pleasing mentality, when we grew up and we loved it when our parents were happy with us and we loved being the apple of our teacher's eye and you know we, we loved making friends with all the kids in our class, not just one or two. Well, if you're that kind of person, like I am, then you just need to be wary of that and say, Lord, change me and make me more like Paul, who says, it's not that I don't care what you think, it's that I care more about what God thinks of me. And if you're upset with me, and if you don't like me, I can sleep well at night because I know my God loves me and accepts me. As long as I'm doing his will, I can sleep with myself knowing that I'm not displeasing him. That's a good goal for all of us. Now, verse 7, he says, So, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. To, he says it twice, to keep me from being conceited. Paul knew, number one, his accomplishments, his skill, his giftedness, 
the way he was doing things that nobody else was, on top of the fact that he had been to a place that only a handful of other people had been, the throne room of heaven, that would have tended to make him arrogant. It's just natural. So God had to humble him. Now, here's kind of a funny story. Um, I had a professor in seminary, Calvin Miller. Uh, he told a story of when he was a pastor, and it was VBS week. So he was working on his sermon. He thought, I'm going to walk down to the fellowship hall and visit the kids doing VBS. So he, of course, went to the place where they're having the cookies and the Kool-Aid. And he found a little guy, five or six years old, and he picked him up. And you have to picture Calvin Miller was this kind of handsome man with a white beard. And he, and he said, the kid just seemed really comfortable with me holding him. And I said, young man, do you know who I am? And the young man said, yeah, you're God. And he said, I dropped him and went home because I know there they know I'm not God and I needed to be put back in my place. I love that story because it's true. If your family, your family loves you, but they still keep you humble, right? They don't, they don't treat you like you're special. Um, God knew that Paul needed someone to humble him. And he sent him this thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. In other words, I think what Paul's saying is God has allowed the devil to get to me. In a, in a sense, sort of the way he did with Job. He, he, is, he is allowing the devil to, to torment me in this one area of my life, and he's not stopping him. Now, why? I'm sorry. Now, what was the thorn? If I had a dollar for every page that's been written and every sermon that's been preached about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, Bible scholars, preachers love to talk about this. So let me tell you some of the leading theories. Some people think that his thorn in the flesh was a person or a group of people that opposed him. Maybe his enemies in Corinth, maybe some of the other people he mentions in his letters that have turned on him or betrayed him in some way. There are others who think it was a temptation, that the devil was tempting him, right? Maybe it was discouragement. Maybe it was uh, pride that he would say, Lord, just take this temptation away. I'm tired of stumbling in this way. The most popular theory is that it was some kind of physical ailment. Some people say maybe headaches or malaria. Malaria was very common in that part of the world. Or epilepsy or a speech impediment. Or this is the most popular one of all, failing eyesight. You know, Paul being a scholar himself. That would be, it, it would be devastating in the ancient world to realize that you're, you're losing your ability to read and there's, there's no eyeglasses, you can't put in contact lenses, it's just gone. Now, just for fun, I will tell you the evidence for that. And there's two passages, they're both in Galatians. Galatians 4, 13 through 15, he says to the Galatians, I know that if possible, you would have torn out your own eyes and given them to me. So that leads people to think, oh, he's saying, they loved him enough that they would have traded their good eyes for his bad eyes. At the end of the letter of Galatians, six, chapter 6, verse 11, he says, See with what, with what large letters I write with my own hand. Remember, Paul dictated his letters to others. Now, that was common. That wasn't necessarily just because he may have been losing his eyesight. That was common for ordinary people to hire somebody to write a letter for them. 
But at the end of the letter, he takes the pen in his own hand and writes it out. And so the theory goes, well, the reason his letters are so large is because his eyes are bad. He wants to be able to see what he's writing. On the other hand, in the book of Acts, we have a, a pretty detailed uh, account of his life up until a certain point. And Luke never mentions any eye trouble for Paul. And at the end of Paul's life, the last, one of the last things he writes, 2 Timothy 4.13, he says to Timothy from prison, he says, when you come, bring the, bring the scrolls that I left behind, especially the parchments. And people who say, well, he couldn't have been losing his eyesight would say, well, why would he want scrolls if he can't read? So, I just told you stuff that profits you nothing. Because we, it is impossible for us to know in this life what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. I do think it's useful for us to suppose, but I think it's even better that we don't know for sure. You know why? Because if we knew for sure, then we wouldn't necessarily be able to identify with it. But as it is, God has withheld that knowledge from us. So now whatever your thorn in the flesh is, you can identify with Paul. Maybe what you're struggling with is what he struggled with too, or at least a version of it. He says in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Three times, he says, he prayed to the Lord that God would take this thorn away from him. But he, you get the impression he has stopped praying for that. Now let me ask you, is there anything in your life that isn't the way you want it to be that you've said, oh, it's okay, Lord, I'm, I'm content with this? Paul had, got, had reached that place because God had spoken to him and said, you're going to have to live with this. And this is why. And by the way, remember this. Anytime you're hearing a fellow Christian or a, a TV preacher or an author saying that if you have enough faith, God will give you what you want. Somebody, and I hope it wasn't someone in this church, I don't think it was, somebody a few years ago gave me a set of coasters for Christmas. Coasters. And the coasters all said the same thing. They said, faith isn't believing that God can, it's knowing that he will. And I, I said, thank you, of course, but I told Carrie, that's not biblical. I don't know that God will heal me, right? I, I, I want to feel better tomorrow because I'm making a long drive to Waxahachie, but I may feel just as sick tomorrow as I do today. I, 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 there are all kinds of things I want. I don't know that God is going to do those for me, and neither do you unless he has specifically promised them. The things I know God's going to do is I know that Jesus is going to come back. I know that God's going to forgive me of all my sins. I know that he will uh, finish the good work he has begun in me on the day of Christ Jesus. And I know that what he has in store for me next is far better than anything I can get around here. There are those kinds of promises I can count on and I lean on. But when I pray, I don't say, Lord, I know you're going to give this to me because I'm believing with enough faith and you have to give me what I ask for. That's not the way it works. Because if it was, then... Paul would have gotten what he wanted, because I guarantee you Paul had better faith than me. Paul prayed three times, and God said no. Sometimes God says no. 
And the reason why, he said, is my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, don't we wish that wasn't in the Bible? Don't we wish it said, my power is made perfect in your pleasure or in your victory? My power is made perfect when you get exactly what you want. But that's not what, that's not what Paul heard from the Lord. The word power, by the way, is a Greek word dunamis, and it's the word we get our word dynamite from. It's a word that means explosive power. And I like that because when we try to operate in our own strength, we make a bunch of noise, but we don't really get anything done. We're like a firecracker. But when we're weak, when we lean on the Lord, then we're like an atomic bomb. Then we get things done. Then we blast open obstacles because God works through weakness. And you see it all through the scriptures. How God intentionally overlooks the likely candidate and chooses the lesser one. I mean, all through Genesis, what do we see? God choosing the younger boy instead of the older. We see him uh, choose David instead of Saul. Saul, the big, tall, broad-shouldered guy. David, the little peach fuzz kid. We see God choose People like Rahab, we see him choose people like, uh, like Ruth, like uh, Mary, to be the mother of the Messiah, who chooses uh, an unmarried poor peasant girl from Nazareth of all places. God just does that. And when he decided he wanted to reach the Gentiles, he chose the least likely candidate of all. He chose the guy who had been persecuting the church. And I think the reason God does it that way is because then we know it's him. Then we know it's him. And you need to understand something. This idea of weakness is strength, it's an idea the world hates. That's not the way the world operates. No one ever gets on the cover of a magazine by being humble. No one ever makes millions and millions of dollars or gets elected to high office by being humble and dependent on the Lord. That's not the way this world works. In fact, um, I was just reading a book the other day that talks about the, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And his whole thing was Christianity has ruined the world because it has sold us on the idea that we should take care of the weakest among us instead of just weeding them out. We ought to just weed them out for the betterment of the human race. And then along came the Nazis and said, that's a pretty good idea. You see, that's, that's the way the world thinks. Weakness needs to be hidden or, or lied about or even eliminated. But God says, come to me in your weakness, and I will make you strong. I'll make you strong in me. Now, do we really believe these things? Because if we do, it changes the way we think about all kinds of things. It changes the way we think about God. I, I remember doing a funeral years ago, and it was uh, an older man who died. He had several children, and they played a song before the funeral, uh, before I got up to speak, and it was the song, there, there Was Always Love in Daddy's Hands. Have you heard that song? Yeah. Uh, and it's a beautiful song. There was always love in Daddy's hands. I'm not going to sing it for you, but I remember there was another preacher there. We, the two of us were both speaking. He was doing the more personal part, and I was doing the message, and he got up right after that song, There Was Always Love in Daddy's Hands, and he got up and he looked over at the adult children and said, I bet it didn't always feel like love, did it? 
And if you had a good father, you know that's true. Sometimes daddy's hands gave you stuff that didn't feel like love, but it was. We don't like discipline. And guess what? God doesn't like having to discipline us. But he does it because he loves us. The book of Hebrews is very clear about that. If he didn't love us, he would let us go on in our sin. But he disciplines us for a reason. We, we would learn to appreciate the discipline of the Lord if we start to see how his purpose in our lives is to make us into his image. It, it ought to change, too, the way we look at what, is, what our definition is of the good life. Because we think of the good life is a life without struggle and a life without pain. A life where everything comes to us easily. A life where we never have to suffer. And yet, Paul left behind a life that was very much like that, where he had the world on a string, at least the Jewish world. He was the, the rising star. He was admired by everyone. He left behind all that and chose a life filled with both struggle and pain. And yet, when I read his letters, it seems to me he's happier than anybody in this room. So the good life isn't necessarily a life that is free from struggle isn't necessarily a life that's free from pain. In fact, if you make that your goal, instead of making it your goal to serve the Lord above all things, you're going to fail. You're going to be disappointed. And then it changes the way we look at the idea of power. Again, Paul's opponents had their impressive resumes. They had their stories. And I would imagine, I don't know this, but I would imagine their resumes were inflated and that they had made up things to make themselves look better. Because back then, who can, who can fact check? Paul had his sufferings. Paul had his weaknesses. Paul was willing to stand up and say, I know I'm not much of a speaker. And I know everywhere they go, they try, everywhere I go, they try to kill me. And I know that I've failed in a number of ways. And most of all, I persecuted the church. But look what God's doing through me. Look what God is able to do in someone like me. That's power. That's true power. Back in 1991, when the Soviet Union was falling apart and there were demonstrations starting to break out in Moscow, something that none of us ever thought we'd see, actual demonstrations in the streets of Moscow protesting the communist government, Mikhail Gorbachev was the Soviet premier then, and he sent out troops and tanks to line up in formation in Red Square, hoping it would scare the demonstrators into giving up and going home. But it didn't work. And later, after the Soviet Union fell, uh, a BBC reporter described that night in this way. He said, it was, it was a display of strength that showed considerable weakness. Don't you, don't you hate how the British are always better able to sum up things than we are? A display of strength that showed considerable weakness. The opposite of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. He gave up his life. He allowed people to kill him. He did not strike back. It was a display of weakness that showed incredible strength. And that's why we're saved. So, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for giving me the voice to deliver this message, this Bible study. Thank you even more that it is in your word. And I pray that you would bless it in our hearts, that, Lord, we would face whatever troubles we have and certainly whatever weaknesses we have with a different view, knowing that you can take them and turn them into advantages through your power and your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to look at you differently and to look at others differently. 
For it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we pray. Amen.